Good morning. Good morning, church. Wonderful to be here with those of you who are joining us here in the sanctuary, and thank you to those of you who are joining us online as well. Thank you for worshiping with us. Well, we live in a society, really just life itself, is a life often full of rules. There's rules or expectations that are placed upon us, or commands given, suggestions made. There's obligations we're supposed to meet. And some of these rules, commands, laws are easy to obey, and some of them are a little more difficult. Uh, Think about driving. When you're driving, most of us find it pretty easy to obey the drive on the right side of the road. That's typically one we don't struggle with because we know the consequences of drifting to the other side. So we're normally pretty good. But there's also rules about speeding, and, and some of us have a more, let's just say, a liberal interpretation of what the speed limit means. Yeah, so... It, it was the same, though, when you were growing up, or maybe you're still uh, a kid at home, and when you're living with your parents or grandparents or guardians, there's often some rules, some expectations, maybe some chores that they have for you to do, and you, some of those you'll find easier, and some of them you'll find more difficult. For me, I, this was just me, I didn't mind taking out the trash. I could do that. That wasn't too hard, but cleaning the bathroom, that was one I didn't like doing at all. Uh, still not a huge fan with that. But with these rules and things that some being easy, some being difficult, it's the same with God and the things he tells us to do. There's some things that God says in his word that come easy to us. There's probably most of us don't struggle with murdering people. And if you do see me after church, I have some friends at the Lower Passion Police Department I'd like to introduce you to. Um, Most of us don't struggle with that. There's commands also about being intimate with animals. And so most of us don't struggle with things like that. There's some things where we're like, okay, yeah, that's the rule. I got it. Not going there. And then, though, there's some things that maybe are hard for us, but aren't hard for someone else or something I struggle with, someone else doesn't. For example, maybe you, you don't really struggle with lying, but perhaps you do spend time gossiping. Or maybe you don't really struggle with lust, but you have an issue with anger. There's some that maybe you struggle with or someone else doesn't. Well, today's passage isn't like that at all. Today's passage is one that I think everybody struggles with. That's hard for everyone. We've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount, a message Jesus has been giving about what life in his kingdom looks like. And as he's been going, it's almost like he's been building in difficulty about how hard it is to follow out what he's saying. This message has been about what exceeding righteousness looks like. Does our righteousness, our goodness go above and beyond those of the people around us? And in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, he's been talking about God's law applied to us. When God gives this law, what does it mean in our life? What does it actually look like? He's talked about laws about anger, lust. He's talked about divorce. Last week, he talked about the words we say or oaths we make. He talked about how we respond to people when they mistreat us and how we shouldn't retaliate. But now we're getting to some really difficult things. And we're seeing that the Sermon on the Mount is not easy to follow. And that's kind of the point. It's demonstrating our need for God. This exceeding righteousness that Jesus wants us to have, it can only come from God's grace. And nowhere is that more clear than the text that we're looking at today. Because in today's passage, Jesus is going to tell us to love our enemies, to love our enemies. Not bear with, not have patience with, not not endure them, not ignore what they're saying. No, he says to love your enemies. And this near impossible task 
is the way he says that we model our perfect heavenly Father. And it's also the way we model our perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's read our passage. If you're not already there, please find your Bibles, your apps, or just look on the screen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. And once you're there, and whatever one you're looking at on the screen, I'd ask you this week, why don't we stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today, Matthew 5, 43 through verse 48. This is what Jesus says, sorry, in verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons, children of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at a difficult passage like this, it reminds us of how perfect and holy you are. God, I pray that you will work in our hearts and minds this morning. Help us to see why we need to treat our enemies with love, why we need to pray for those who persecute us. Help us to see how we can do that, why it's important to look different than those around us. God, give us the strength to do that. Give us strength to make us pursue the perfection you have. Remind us it's not possible on our own, but it's only possible through the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that he may increase in the glory that we see that he is who we need. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus has been talking about applying God's law. He's looked at these different ways it works. And then he continues in this very last time saying it. He says, you have heard that it was said. And he's making a major point that we should love your enemies. Love your enemies. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And he explains what it means to love your enemies is that you love them and that you pray for them, that you love and pray if you're using the outline. To start it, he typically is quoting or summarizing what the understanding of the day was, and he says, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And he's not really quoting a Bible verse, he's quoting what the people of the day, the Pharisees, the other religious leaders, understood God's word to be saying. The first part of that, you shall love your neighbor, well, that was a key part of God's law. It was understood to be a summary of what the Old Testament law was saying about how we treat other people. Everyone at that time understood God expected his people to treat their neighbors, to treat their community with respect and love. But then there was a little spin that they added to it. The Pharisees, other religious leaders taught, well, if we're to love our neighbors and those who are close to us, then 
logically, it will be God-honoring for us to hate our enemies, hate our enemies, those who oppose our people. And we can understand how they fell into this trap. If we see someone doing something against God, we would say, well, if they're living against God, then shouldn't I do everything possible to oppose them? Shouldn't I try to stop whatever they're doing if they're living against God? Shouldn't I, I hate them? But the problem is neither God nor the Old Testament ever commanded God's people to hate their enemies. This is the Pharisees misinterpreting what God said there about loving their neighbors. Now, the word hate is used in the Bible. I'm not going to go through all the times there. And it's used to describe how God views sin. And he sometimes brings judgment on a nation or on a group of people who are rebelling against him and may say God hates them, something like that. But the Old Testament never commanded God's people to hate individuals. God hates evil, and so we can understand where they're coming from. They think it would be natural to hate God's enemies, but it was never commanded by God. This is what Leviticus 19.18 actually says. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I don't see anything about hating in there. It's, it's not there. It's an assumption that the religious leaders added to it. They said, if we're supposed to love our neighbors, then we should also hate our enemies. This really isn't what the message is about, but it's dangerous to assume what God would be for or what God would be against when his word doesn't say. Now, we can make, we can draw an application and be like, if God says this, then he's probably against that, but we just have to tread very carefully there. We have to be very careful to not condemn or say God hates something when his word doesn't say it. Because if we do, we'll look silly in the future. I'm sure you've, those of you who've heard me preach before, know I love uh, old dead pastors and preachers and quoting them, and I love reading the things that they wrote. There are a couple areas, though, where it, it's a little silly by modern day standards. You don't have to go too far back when almost every pastor would preach and tell you how terrible it was to go to a theater, or that you were a deep sinner if you spent any time playing any cards or anything like that. And uh, don't let me hear, I understand what they're saying. What they're saying is those activities can promote sinful behavior. Many theaters at the time were doing shows that were more about satisfying the lust of the eyes. And playing cards was more often than not used in gambling and wasting the resources that God gave you. And they could promote laziness, not serving God. So I understand why they're saying that. But by con condemning the whole thing, they're missing the truth that theater, a movie, a show can be an art form that's used for God's glory or to see his goodness. And we can play a game with someone just for fun to enjoy life together. Now, if you're someone and going to a theater or a movie or playing a card game leads you into sin, I'm not telling you to do that. Don't, don't hear me saying that. If, if it's something that you know, well, I do that, it often leads me to do wrong things, then avoid that. But I think it's going too far to condemn all of something as evil if God hasn't said that he condemns it. When God's word is clear, we should be clear. We should be careful about going beyond it, or we'll be like the Pharisees here who said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus corrects their misunderstanding in verse 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
When he's saying love, he's calling for a continuous action. It's something that you have to actively do to show love. Not something you do once, but you keep doing it. And see how much stronger this is than last week. Last week we talked about retaliation. Remember last week he said, do not resist the one who is evil about turning the other cheek. But now we're going a step farther. We're just not only not retaliating, we're actively choosing to love the person who is doing this to us. Maybe we need to talk about that word for a second, love. Because love is often misunderstood in our day and age. When we say love, we often think of a feeling, an emotion, something that just arises up in us. If you've ever watched any movie at all, if they look across the room and the heart goes boom and they see the person and the, the love is just all of a sudden there. It's this feeling, it's this magic thing that comes. And we definitely have feelings and emotions and they are wonderful and great. But when the Bible talks about love, it's talking about a decision we're making, an action that we're taking. We are deciding to show caring actions toward another person. We are committing to look out for someone else's interest before our own. And this shouldn't be too foreign to us. Even now, when we say that we love someone, we would hope that we're saying we're going to care for this person, we're going to look out for their interest, we're going to put them before us. But this is what he means, show that kind of love, that action. It doesn't mean you need to have warm feelings to somebody who's your enemy, but it does mean you need to show caring actions to them and look out for their interest. He also says we're to pray for our persecutors. We're to commit their welfare to God. We're to pray for them. And by pray for them, I don't mean a bitter, God, I can't believe they did that to me, or a, or a sarcastic, oh Lord, bless their heart for they're doing that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a genuine prayer for this person, praying for God to know that person, for God to bless that person. It's also challenged us to pray for humility for ourselves, to pray, God, have I contributed to this? What this person is doing, is there something that I've done wrong that leads to this problem? This is not the only place Jesus talks about this. In the book of Luke, it puts it this way, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So we see the beginning and end of that are the same as our verse. If you have a a new King James or a King James version, most likely took the middle part there and also put it in Matthew. Jesus said that as well. So it's still true. So whether yours has that in Matthew or not is not really an issue. Because loving our enemies would definitely involve doing good to those who hate you and blessing those who curse you. That's part of loving our enemies too. This instruction of Jesus, though, runs through the New Testament. The Apostle Paul summarizes it this way in the book of Romans. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When someone sends hate, you respond with love, overcoming that evil with good. One pastor, Danny Aiken, I really liked how he put this. He put, returning evil for good is satanic. Returning evil for evil, that's simply human. But returning good for evil, now that is divine. That is something that only God's people can do. It's the opposite of our human nature. Only God can do this and lead us to respond in that way. Only God can call us to give ourselves away, to give ourselves away for those who attack us and persecute us. 
Jesus is saying, as crazy as it sounds, a Christian, a genuine Christian who's a part of my kingdom will find it natural to respond in love when someone, their enemy, attacks them. They'll find out it works out for their benefit to respond with a loving action. We talked about this verse, 1 Peter 3, 9, last week, mainly looking at the first half. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But now Jesus is getting to the second half of this. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. We are blessed when we respond differently. That doesn't mean everything works out for us, or we're going to have bunches and bunches of money, but we are blessed because we are modeling God. We are becoming more like Him. When we respond with love, instead of attacking an enemy who attacks us, we show the difference God's grace makes. Probably one of the best illustrations of this in the Bible, and I'm not going to read it now, but is a story Jesus tells, the parable of the Good Samaritan. To understand that, though, you have to realize in that day, Samaritans and Jews were two people groups who hated each other, despised each other. They had nothing to do with each other. Some historical research tells us that Jews would travel for miles just to not even go in the land where the Samaritans lived. They absolutely hated each other. But in that story, a Jew is hurt, he is beat up, he's been robbed, and no one stops to help him except a Samaritan, someone that Jew would have hated and spoken against his whole life. But this Samaritan comes, he binds him up, he heals him, he takes care of him, he takes him somewhere, an inn where he can recover, and then he pays for his stay there. He goes above and beyond in caring for his enemy. This is the love that Jesus is calling for in our passage. And this loving grace of God is powerful. And when people see it, it has the power to change hearts and minds. It's not a guarantee. If someone attacks you and you respond with love, it's not saying like, oh, well, I'm sorry. I forsake everything I ever did to you. It's not a guarantee, but it is possible. There's a change, an active change that can happen. When we show love, when we show the action of love, it can lead to change because something's happened to us as well. Pastor Charles Spurgeon says, it's not that we merely cease to hate and then we abide in a cold neutrality. Okay, I've left hate and we're okay, but we don't have anything to do with each other. No, but we love where hatred seemed inevitable. When someone attacks us, the natural thing is to respond. We want to defend ourselves, but when we resist that natural urge and we instead respond with active love, well, that's much more difficult. It is much more difficult to love an enemy, to take an interest in them, to care for them. So how do we do it? How in the world could we show that kind of love to someone who's attacking us? Well, we could start by perhaps practicing good listening and really trying to understand where they're coming from. And let me explain. Understanding is not the same as agreeing. I'm not saying you're in the wrong, but when you understand, that's the first step to love. It's very difficult to love someone if you don't understand where they're coming from. And seeing their perspective and understanding that I don't agree with this person, but I'm willing to show love and grace to them. I read this earlier this year. There was a man named Arthur Brooks. He's still alive. He's a Catholic writer. And he actually spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast this year. And in his speech, he said this, which I thought was really good. He said, true moral courage isn't standing up to people with whom you disagree. No, true moral courage is standing up to people with whom you agree on behalf of those 
with whom you disagree. Are you strong enough to do that? That, I believe, is one way we can live up to Jesus' teaching to love our enemies. It's easy when somebody's yelling at you to say, well, I resist you. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm standing for what I believe. It's much harder when you're with people who are attacking someone to say, hey, this person's a human too, and we need to show love and grace to them. It is incredibly hard to defend someone you disagree with. We have to search for a way to show love to them. Jesus gives us an example of this. You may remember the story where uh, some religious leaders bring him a woman that they've caught in adultery, and they, they want to stone this woman. Well, think about this situation. Jesus is the Son of God. He knows that adultery is wrong. He knows that there should be punishment for it. But where he sees the problem is, is yes, this woman has sinned, but these Pharisees, who I agree that they're right, she's sinning, but they are responding in a condemnation that's not helpful here, that's denying this person's humanity, that they too have a soul. And so he stands up for this woman in sin to the people who want to attack her. He defends her. He agreed with the Pharisees. Her sin was wrong, but he stood against how they condemned this woman. Do we do this? This is a high bar. Do we love and pray for our enemies in that way? Now, maybe saying the word enemy sounds a little strong to you. You may say, Pastor John, I'm a nice guy. I don't really have enemies. Oh, okay, well, just think about perhaps someone who angers you, who annoys you, gets under your skin, rubs you the wrong way. And if you say, oh, nobody does that to me, then I assure you, you do that to somebody. So just think about that person who's, who doesn't respond very well when you, what's wrong with that, that positivity. There is someone you don't get along with. That is the person that you can pray for and show love to. And let me encourage you. You probably know who this person is. Think about it. Who is that person who rubs you the wrong way, who makes life difficult for you? Do you pray for that person by name? Do you pray that they would know God, that God would be working in their lives? You may pray, oh God, give me the strength to interact with this person, and that's wonderful as well, but do you pray for that person? Do you think, God, how can I show your love and grace to that person? God, work in me to show love to this person the way you love them. Do you remind yourselves, as Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that our treatment of others must never depend upon what they are, or upon what they do to us. God, remind me that I know this person treats me terribly, but that should not be how I view them. And then may we pray to God for wisdom. God, give me the wisdom to know when I need to fight and push back and stand up for your truth, and when I need to be humble and show love. That's a wisdom issue. Do you pray, God, show me where I'm blind and where I might be contributing to this problem? And let me be clear, even if you pray for someone your whole life, you may never have a good relationship with that person. This is not a guarantee thing, but it is possible that that person could become a brother or sister in Christ, and perhaps you could have a deeper relationship with them. God's glory, His kingdom growing, that's more important than your reputation and defending yourself. All of this, this type of love is possible because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus illustrates this with his life. In the Gospel of Luke, we read this. When they came to the place that is called the skull, where they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And as he's on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Jesus responded with forgiveness and love and grace to his enemies, and we should too. Now, I know there's a lot of details about how that could work out in each of our lives, and I'm not here to tell you exactly how that works in your life. And I realize with certain things people have done, there are consequences that that need to come for that, and those definitely happen. I'm not saying there are no consequences when someone does something to us, but we should still seek where can I extend God's loving grace to this person. One of my favorite books is a short little devotional called The Gospel Primer. It's by a man named Milton Vincent. I've referenced it before. But this is what he says about showing love to our enemies. He says, doing good and showing love to those who have wronged me is always the opposite of what my sinful flesh wants to do. When someone wrongs me, I do not want to respond in love back. But nonetheless, when I remind myself of my sins against God, when I remind myself of his forgiving and generous grace toward me, well, then I give the gospel an opportunity to reshape my perspective, to put me in a frame of mind where I actually desire to give this same grace to those who have wronged me. You may hear me up here saying, love your enemies, love your enemies. And you may say, that doesn't make any sense, Pastor John. You don't know what this person did to me. And that's right. I don't. I don't know. But if we switch our mind from what that person did to how God treats us and how God interacts with us, if we change our perspective to what have I done against God and what forgiveness and grace has he shown me, then loving our enemies makes a bit more sense. That doesn't mean it'll be easy. That doesn't mean that it will come naturally. That doesn't mean we'll struggle to do it. But it does make more sense when we think about the love that God shows for us. And that's because even in our text, Jesus goes on to say, we love and pray for our enemies because we are God's children. This is what he says at the very beginning of verse 45. We love and pray for our our enemies because we are God's children. He says, so that you may be sons or children of your Father who is in heaven. We show love, we pray for those who persecute us, so we may be recognized as children true children of our heavenly father. We show love not so we can become God's children. God's not going to go up there, did you love this person, this person, and this person? Okay, you can come in. No, we show love to demonstrate, I am God's child. This is what God's children do. If you're a parent, you probably know your kids generally act like you. You You may deny it, but generally your kids make the same kind of decisions, the same personality that you have. And in the same way, God's children respond how their father responds. The British pastor J.C. Ryle had a very convicting question. He said, where is our likeness to our father in heaven if we cannot show mercy and kindness to everybody? If we don't show mercy and kindness, then how are we like God? How could someone look at us and say, yes, that is God's child? Loving our enemies is proof that we are God's children. It's how we reflect God's image, how we show, yes, God is in me because I love my enemies. I desire to bring God glory in this way. This is why we love our enemies first and foremost, is because we're his children, because we want people to see God in us. That's why we do it first. And then that way it doesn't matter how the person responds. Now, when we love our enemies, that may lead the person to know God later, but that is not the reason we do it. 
We love our enemies because we belong to God. That's how we act in our family, period. We love our enemies because God loved us when we were his enemies. What that person does with that, that doesn't matter. Modeling God's character, that is what matters. Jesus's point here is that believers should be different from unbelievers. Believers should be different from unbelievers. Now, some things are the same for both believers and unbelievers, and what's same is they both experience God's common grace. The second part of verse 45 says, He, God, makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God causes, He makes the sun to rise in the sky, and somebody, whether they live evilly or they live a good life, they still see the sun. He brings rain, and everybody gets the benefit of that, whether they're just or unjust, or they're righteous or unrighteous. God gives this blessing of common grace to everyone on earth, even those who reject Him, even those who will never come to know God, those who will spend an eternity separated from Him, they still experience something of God's goodness. Anyone who is able to stay alive is able to do so because God has provided for them. Anyone who is alive experiences God's blessing of food, of air, of water, of the resources they need to live. They experience these blessings that really belong to God, that come from Him. I thought this was kind of cool. If you look at verse 45, I don't have it on the screen, but the second part, it says about God, He makes His Son not the son, not, not the, this thing out there, but no, it belongs to God. It's his son, and he decides to give its light to some people, to those of us who live on earth. It's a reminder to us that on this side of eternity, as we live here, God doesn't always give people what they deserve in this life. And that's actually a good thing, because praise God, when we sinned and rebelled against God, he didn't immediately send judgment. God knows. He knows that people are enslaved to their sin, that they belong to Satan. They're under his control. And so he doesn't bring immediate judgment when we rebel against him. And what Jesus is telling us is we should show that same grace to others. God doesn't bring immediate judgment. And as he shows grace to all creation, so should we. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus puts it this way. He says, but love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. Why? For he, for God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So what makes us similar to everybody else in the world? We experience some of God's kindness and goodness. We experience common grace. But in very major ways, we are different from everyone else in the world. And we should be different, Jesus is saying here, in how we treat others. In how we treat others. How we love sets us apart from others. If we belong to God's kingdom, our life should be distinctly different. He explains this with two rhetorical questions. The first one, he says, verse 46, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? He's saying if you love those who love you, if you treat with love those who treat you with love, there's nothing praiseworthy in that. Every person on earth does that. 
this is basically the same as what Luke records in Luke 6. He uses different words. He uses sinners and those who do good to you, but it's the same thing. He says the tax collectors do the same thing. And remember, if you don't, in Jesus' day, to be a tax collector, that was the absolute worst job that you could have if you were a Jew. Because what that meant is you betrayed your people. You were working for the occupying government, and you were collecting taxes, stealing from your own people. Most often they were corrupt, and tax collectors were hated and despised. And a Jew could go through life thinking, I may not be the best person in the world, but at least I'm not a tax collector. But Jesus says... Do not even the tax collectors do that? His comment is meant to provoke. It's meant to make his audience angry because he's challenging their sense of superiority. They thought they were better than tax collectors. But Jesus is saying, if you love those who love you, you're really not better than them. There's nothing special. There's nothing distinct about loving people who love you. God's people, Christians, are called to something more. We are to love people even when they do evil against us. He gives another illustration in verse 47. He says, if you're only greeting your brothers, the members of your same people group, well, then do not even the Gentiles, non-believers, do that. Christians should not act the same as unbelievers. Unbelievers greet people they know, have warm relationship with their own people and friends. Here he's specifically talking to Jews. They had a special greeting they'd give to other Jews, and then they'd ignore those who were not Jews. Talking about Gentiles or pagans, non-believers. If you have New King James, it says tax collectors again, but it's the same thing. Somebody who they thought they were better than. He's saying, no, they do the same thing. And failing to love indicates a failure to know God. This is, it's the mark of an unbeliever if you're not loving your enemies. If you're just loving those who love you, that is what unbelievers do. It's not just having an attitude of love. It's showing kindness to our enemies. Those who know God, true Christians, they're unique, special, set apart. God has completely changed their hearts and their lives. Remember, Jesus's main point in this sermon is that we have exceeding righteousness, that Christians should be, there should be something we see in their lives that makes them different from everyone else. They're able to live in a self-sacrificial way that others just can't. And Christians are able to live with love and self-sacrifice because they know this life is not ultimate. This life is not the end of the story. There is something else to come, so they don't have to defend themselves and get what's mine in this life. They can extend love and grace to others. Now, maybe if you're here or you're looking, watching online and you're not a Christian, you may say, I don't know many Christians who live that way. I don't see that type of sacrifice and love that you're talking about. Maybe in the church we have to admit that we don't see that very often. Maybe we haven't known very many true Christians. If we're not seeing this type of love, this should be what happens and what defines us. The truth is that God changes those who are his children. He works in their hearts and minds. He changes the people who come to know him. A relationship with God makes a difference in their lives. Again, uh, British pastor J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, unfailing courtesy, kindness, tenderness, and consideration for others are some of the greatest ornaments to the character of a child of God. And I realize we're not close to Christmas, but think of a Christmas tree. 
the ornaments that stand out, that should be what people see. They look and they say, wow, this person has unfailing courtesy. They're kind, they're tender, they're considerate for others. That's what should stand out in a Christian's life. And on the other hand, he says, there is really no religion, no true faith in rudeness, roughness, bluntness, and incivility. Wow, those are words I see a lot today. That's attitude that I see a lot. But Jesus, when he's telling us to love others, he's saying our character should look different when people look at us. From that same speech I quoted earlier, Arthur Brooks then said, no one has ever been insulted into agreement. You can only persuade with love. If we want our witness to win others to the faith, then we need to show love to our enemies. The very last verse of our text then is kind of a wrap-up to this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has been going through what God's law looks like. And so it comes to, well, what should we do with all these things? All these extra things we have to do, all this this change that you're making to God's law, how much, much difficult you're making it, Jesus, especially this loving our enemies thing. Do we really have to do it? Why should we do that? Well, Jesus says we do it because we have a goal. We have a purpose. Our goal is perfection. Perfection. I have the 100, 100% perfection. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus' conclusion is that God's people must, they shall be perfect. They should do whatever it takes to look more like Jesus. And that's going to be hard. That's going to be very difficult. It will require discipline. It will require struggle. It will require hard work. As I was thinking about uh, this pursuit of perfection being a disciplined struggle, hard work. That word perfection reminded me of a line from a movie, Remember the Titans? I don't know if I saw that. Um, I, I also came to a very startling realization about that movie. As of a couple weeks ago, that movie is 20 years old, so I feel really old now. Uh, yeah, so this 20-year-old movie about football has a great line from the, the coach in the movie, and this is what he says. He's talking about football here, but this desire for perfection, I think, is reflected in what we're seeing in our text. He says, we will be perfect in every aspect of the game. You drop a pass, you run a mile. You miss a blocking assignment, you run a mile. You fumble the football. I will not attempt to say it like Denzel Washington, but I will break my foot off in your John Brown hind parts, and then you will run a mile. Perfection. Let's get to work. And so that's a a silly example, inspiring one for pursuing it in football. But We see this desire about perfection is what that team was striving for. And Jesus is saying, you as a follower of God, you strive for perfection. Yes, it's hard to obey God's law. Yes, it's hard to love our enemies. But God tells us to do this for a purpose. He gives us his law, his commands, his instructions so that we could be like God. God's law finds its fulfillment in who God is, his character. It's how Jesus lived. And we as his people, we were meant to be designed to be perfect. We were meant to chase after this because we were made for it. We were meant to be perfect, mature, whole. What does this look like if we're pursuing it? It means that we want to do good. It means we examine our heart and see, God, where am I not living for you? It means we know our place before God. God, everything I have is only because of you. It means that we love our heavenly father. 
is that us? Are we seeking perfection like that? Or are we just satisfied with a a lukewarm, a stagnant spiritual life? God and I are good. I'm good. Or no, are we chasing after perfection? Are we working toward it? How do we do that? Well, it's interesting where this command appears. Jesus ties perfection to love. We are closest to God when we are showing the most sacrificial love. If we aim at the perfection that God has, the only way we get there is by actively showing love to others. Loving our enemies is a necessary part of our pursuit of perfection. As we seek to live out God's word, we are pursuing that standard. Now, to be clear, the Bible tells us that we will never arrive at perfection on this side of life. We'll never get to a point, now I'm perfect, now I'm good, now I'm done. That's not going to happen on this side of life. But it's still something we're to chase after, to go after every day, becoming more and more like God. It's our goal, our purpose. We should continually be growing to be more and more like Jesus. We should check ourselves regularly. Am I more like Jesus now than I was yesterday, a month ago, a year ago? Am I growing to be more like him? The Apostle Peter says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions, to your desires of your former ignorance, the way you used to live. But as he, as God who called you is holy, you also be holy, separate, distinct in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We leave the old behind. We pursue holiness, living for God. That desire should influence every part of our lives. It should influence how we think. It should influence every decision that we make. And what's interesting about this passage, uh, Peter is quoting also from the Old Testament book of Leviticus when he says, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's Leviticus 19.2, which remember way back at the beginning of the message, the love your neighbor as yourself, that's from the same, very same passage. So if we want to be holy, God was saying way back then, the way you do it, is by loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is saying the same is true today. The only way we can do that is by being holy. His Holy Spirit enables us to do this. Yes, it is hard, but God is at work in his people. We chase after it. We pursue that kind of perfection. We won't reach it in this life. Oh, but friends, we will reach it when we're with God or when Christ returns. John would write this in 1 John. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. What will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so how do we live now? He says, Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We become more holy, living more for God, knowing that someday we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Friends, brothers and sisters, we're really friends. If you're here, let me ask, do you have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Because otherwise, all these things of saying, loving our enemies, living perfectly, that's impossible without Jesus. This Sermon on the Mount is not a checklist of things to cross off, yes, now I'm right with God. It's the lifestyle of someone who has a relationship with, with him. So let me ask you, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you turned away from your sin and trusted in him, the one who died for your sin, who paid for it so that you could be restored to God? 
And whether you're here in the sanctuary, whether you're watching online, I would encourage you to seek God, to seek a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to talk to me about it, I can help you with that. But you need to know Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you will always fall short of God's standard. But with him, you can be growing to be more like him. So if you have a relationship with him, will you commit to love your enemies the way Jesus does? And for right now, will you praise this God who loved you when you were his enemy? Because he alone is worthy of that kind of praise.